If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd love to look with you this morning in the book of Romans. We are turning to chapter 6 this morning. So I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. So this is a book that tells us about God's power for salvation. So everyone who's here, whether you believe or not, we all need the exact same thing. We all need the gospel. We all need to know more about Jesus. We all need to know uh, about truth, whether we are here exploring Christianity or you've been a believer longer than I've been alive. So that's what this book is about together. One other quick thing I wanted to tell you, and I meant to say this before my uh, introduction to Romans, but just real quick, I haven't given you all an update on my health in a little while, so I wanted to just uh, mention a couple things to you. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, uh, I finished up chemotherapy in the in middle of January of this year. And so... Uh, I have some tests coming up uh, in two weeks. I've got blood work and other tests and scans and whatnot on the 24th. And so if you'd like to pray for me, I would appreciate it if you would. Um, I always get nervous the further I am removed from treatments and the closer I get to having more tests and scans. And so my anxiety is welling up, if you will. And so if you pray for me on the 24th, I'll be at the doctor's office most of the day. I've got some tests in the morning and then some other appointments in the afternoon. So pray for me. I really would appreciate it. And again, uh, pray that God's will would be done and that I would learn to be more dependent on him and that I would learn what those words we just said, that my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to Jesus. Full stop. So you're welcome to pray any of that and more if you want for me. I would appreciate that. But let's look at Romans 6. I'll read the first 14 verses. Listen to this. This is God's word, and I'm not going to lie to you. This is exciting stuff that we get to look at today. I love this chapter. I feel like I get to put on a favorite pair of shoes. You know how it feels to put on your favorite pair of shoes? That's kind of what I feel like in this section in Romans 6, 7, and 8. So listen to this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. <clears throat> How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, get the turning point there? So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members at, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, bought, excuse me, brought from death to life, 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, again we ask, help us to not come into your presence, hoping to hear some good advice for life. Help us to not be here because we think that in coming to worship we learn how to be nice or we learn how to be nicer. Keep us from thinking that we're here so that we can listen to a motivational speech. Help us never to think that we gather with your people so we can learn how to make following you, Jesus, easier than it actually is. Help us, Lord, to know that we are here because we need to receive life. Help us to know that we need to be worked on, that we need you to act on us. Work in us a deeper and greater desire that compels us to know that we need more of you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, do all these things and whatever else you want. Have your way with us. We pray again in your name. Amen. What has shaped the way you are? Would you take a few moments and just scroll back through your life and think about who you are and what shaped you into the person that you are. Did you grow up in a loving environment? Did you grow up in a positive environment? Did you have a mom and a dad or a parent or someone in your life that was positive towards you that said encouraging things to you? Or did you grow up in an environment that was kind of negative? If you want to press that even more, if you're willing to think even more deeply, when you were growing up, how were you encouraged the only time that you were encouraged was it when you achieved something? Were you criticized whenever you brought shame on a parent or a parental figure? When were you criticized? When you did something wrong? When you got something wrong? When were you encouraged? Was it just production? Was it just achievement? Did you ever have anyone encourage you in your life and speak well of you just because they wanted to? Did you grow up in a home where no one could admit they're wrong? Did you have a parental figure that never could admit they're wrong? Did you have a figure that encouraged you to never admit that you're wrong? How about conflict? How did that go in your house? Did you live in a house that ignored conflict? Or did you grow up in a house where there was just yelling? And if you grew up in a house in which conflict was ignored and you might have married someone in which conflict was resolved by yelling, you know what that was like when you married that person. Whoa, what is going on here? Because you're just used to ignoring it. Now all of a sudden my spouse is used to yelling. What do I do with that? I want to ask you these questions because it's important to think about what has shaped you. Not just growing up at home, but what about your career? What about medically? What about everything else? What 
things have shaped you into who you are. Do you even know? Would you, would you think about that? And I want you to think about that not because I want you to stay stuck there, although I want all of that stuff to come to the surface, even if you have to put a pin in it and think, well, I need to go back and think more about this. I want all that stuff to come to the surface. And I don't want you to stay there. I don't want you to be stuck there because we need to walk through Romans 6. And I want you to have all that stuff on the surface because Romans 6 is telling you this. Romans 6 is declaring for those of us that are following Jesus and in Christ, Romans 6 is declaring this is who you are. This is who you are. These 14 verses. This is who you are. So no matter whatever is coming to the surface, it is no match for these 14 verses. It's no match for Jesus. Jesus is the weapon that you need. He is the resource that you need to reshape your life and to understand afresh who you really are. That can address hardship and pain and joys, but can also re- kind of rewire you and help you realize that there is someone in the universe who loves you for you, not what they can get out of you or get from you. That a real relationship with God isn't transactional, it's relational. So let's look this morning at that idea. This is who you are in Jesus. And oh, by the way, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, this is what's offered to you. This is what Jesus says he's done. This this is the offer of the, this is good news for you. This is who you can be in Jesus. So here are our stops along our journey this morning. This is who you are, rooted in history. Our second stop will be powered by the life of another. And then third, our third stop on this journey this morning will be this. Consider yourself. Like, consider yourself. You got me? Rooted in history. Powered by the life of another. And consider yourself. So let's go to our first stop. Rooted in history. Look at these first five verses, rooted in history. Let's begin exactly where Paul does in verse one. Now, remember, Paul has just made staggering statements at the end of chapter five about the grace of God. Staggering statements. Statements like, sin is no match for grace. That, that grace overpowers sin. That the grace of God is more significant than sin. And for those of us that are bent towards sinning, remember? For those of us that are bent towards substituting ourselves for God. For those of us that are bent toward wanting to serve self. For those of us that are bent toward rebellion. It makes perfect sense that if someone were to say to me, hey Dave, you know what? Every time you sin, it just magnifies the grace of God. It makes perfect sense to me to say, I like that. (laughs) So I want to sin some more. 
I love this grace of God thing because the grace of God means that I just get to do more of what I want and then his grace is just bigger. Doesn't it make sense? That if you hear that grace overpowers sin, that you might think if you were bent toward sinning and bent toward rebelling, that you would naturally incline to say, oh, great, I can't wait to do everything that I want and keep serving myself. By the way, Paul includes himself in these first couple verses. What shall we say? He's including himself. He knows what's going on in his own heart too. And he answers that question. He answers that thought. Well, I'm just gonna keep sinning that God's grace may get bigger and bigger. And he says in verse two, may it never be. With the strongest possible language he can. No way. No way. That is not the way that we're supposed to live. That is not understanding the grace of God. No way, by no means, should we keep sinning. No way. You crazy. No way. And to press that even further, Paul wants us to think about baptism. Look at verse three through five. He wants us to think about baptism. There's no way that you could think that the grace of God, because it's more powerful, should lead you to sin. You're not understanding grace. Just think about your baptism. You see, when Paul writes about baptism in verse 3 through 5, he's not talking about how much water to put on somebody. He's talking about the meaning of baptism. He's talking about what it represents. He's talking about the significance of baptism. Listen, listen to what he says in 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's saying, we were baptized into Jesus' death, and we were raised to a new life. We were raised from the dead that we might live a brand new life. And all of this is by God's doing. You didn't crucify yourself, and you do not make yourself alive. You're dead, spiritually gone. Remember chapter three? We're done. Before God, we are dead, and no one crucifies himself, and no one raises themselves from the dead. Paul is saying, don't you remember that God's grace was so powerful that it made you alive? Baptism is picturing for us what God has done, not what we do, not what we have responded to. It is picturing for us what God does, which is death on one hand, dying in Jesus, and resurrection on the other, being raised in him that God's grace works that into us so that as we see baptism, we are supposed to remember the meaning of that is that I have been crucified with Jesus and I am now alive in him. And all of this is of God so that I might praise him and be thankful for what he has done in my life and what he will continue to do. You see, if you want to understand grace in your life, it looks an awful lot like death and new life. The grace of God in action means that as we live our lives, however many years the Lord gives us, we will die to things 
and we will find new life in other things. We will continue to repent and we will continue to believe and follow and obey. So Paul is saying there's no way that we could ever say, let's just keep sinning because God's grace is greater because of our baptism. Do you remember what God has done? Do you remember what he pictures for you and all that he is and what he promises for you? You see, baptism is like someone giving you a jersey from your favorite team. And you wear that jersey, and in wearing that jersey, you watch your team play, and you identify with their wins. How many of you ever watched your favorite team win? You're like, well, we won yesterday. And you and we contributed nothing to that, right? Or your team loses, man, we lost. We had it. Right? Meanwhile, we didn't do anything to contribute to that either. We identify with our team, our team's wins, our team's losses, our family, others that wear the same jersey and cheer for the same team. Baptism is like someone giving you the jersey. And you recognizing that is when you live into that reality so that you are claiming someone else's wins on your behalf. His name is Jesus, and you're claiming his defeat on your behalf when he gave up his own life to save you. And you are identifying with his family, the church, so that these are your people, all of those that belong to the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying the grace of God is amazing. And all of that is rooted in history. Jesus died and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Your baptism is rooted in history. Who you are is rooted in historical events so that by grace you claim them as your own so that you are defined by those historical events. Do you get it? So there's no possible way to conceive, well, I can just keep on sinning and it doesn't matter. Why do I need to care? Do I really need to make a big deal about rebelling against God? Of course you do. Because it's not who you are anymore. You've been brought to life. And your new life is dying to things and coming to new life in other things. Well, our second stop on the journey is this, that our life is powered by the life of another. So in verses 6 through 10, we have Paul going deeper into this whole death and resurrection stuff. He's going deeper into thinking about dying and deeper into thinking about being raised to new life. Notice what he says in verse 6 and 7 that our old self has been crucified, past tense, gone, done. Your old self has been crucified. He has died, she has died. Your former self is gone. Your old identity is no more. You have a new identity. You have been crucified. You have been nailed to the cross. Well, in thinking about that, the purpose is set up in verse 7. The whole purpose of us thinking about death 
and resurrection is that verse 7 says we would be free. Do you notice that? I want to read it to you. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See that? What God has done sets you free. So it's not just that you live into this jersey that you have received. It's not that you just live into the baptism. It is that you're free to do that. That it becomes the desire of your heart that you find in Jesus freedom. Because everything else outside of Jesus is bondage. You do realize that we all live for something, right? All of us live for something. Here are some things I thought of this week. Our career. We live for our career. Maybe our family. We live for our family. Everything centers around family. If anything happens to our family, well, we'll get to that. But family, especially in this area, family is a huge deal. Something that we try to protect all of the time. If you say something against someone in your family, then it, you're against the family. That can be why we live, is family. New things. Maybe what you live for are new things. Anybody have a one-click addiction on Amazon? You have to buy something all the time? Do you not know what to do if you can't spend any money? Do you have to have new things in order to feel significant or experiences? What gives you significance is new experiences. So you always have to be trying something new, doing something new, going somewhere new. You need a new experience to make you feel significant. And although that you may think that these are just part of life, more often than not, they really control us. You ever thought about how deeply you want to be right? Like it's so deep that if you're in a conversation and someone corrects you, you can't help but justify why you said what you said. Or even if you're to the point where someone corrects something you said, you can't just internally you're anxious because you said something or did something that someone else found out to be not right. Because deep down, the way you gain significance is being right all the time. So lo and behold, the time when you aren't right. Because inside, restless, unease, that desire to prove self. What about having influence? Does that give you significance? Maybe the older you get, you want more and more influence over things. Maybe you're young and super driven and you want to have influence over this or over that. Does it have you? So that you'll compromise your relationships because you can't have the influence that you want? Therefore, if I can't have influence by getting to know these people, then I'm going to move on and go to some place where I can. Because if I don't get the influence that I want, then I'm not feeling significant. I'm not feeling that I'm worth any, I'm not feeling that I'm valued. 
Do you see how subtly these things can actually control us so that we would make decisions, so, so that our moods are determined by these things? So if we're getting our way and we're right and we're getting influence and we're having all these experiences, we feel great. But if we're not having influence, if we're not having the relationship that we want, we feel horrible, like really horrible. Like I'm not sure life is worth living, kind of horrible. Like I just don't know who I am anymore, kind of horrible. We get paralyzed because deep down we're being controlled by what we have placed significance in. Therefore, we are in bondage, you see? And friends, what may be controlling you in your life, whether it's your career or your family or the need to be right or all those other things that we touched upon, none of those will die for you. There's not one of those that's gonna suffer for you There's not one of them that will suffer with you. I've never met an amount of money that would suffer with me. Have you? I've never tasted any amount of power that wouldn't just move on from me the second that I'm not there. None of these things that control us will actually pour into us and bring us satisfaction and value and worth that we need. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. We need to be set free. Because oftentimes we don't even recognize that we're in bondage. We just think this career is part of my life. Being right is an important thing to be. Having this relationship is exactly what I need to bring fulfillment. It won't. It will leave you. It doesn't care. They don't care. Paul is saying the only person that will pour into you to make you into who you should be is Jesus. The only person who will suffer with you and for you is Jesus. And as profound as our relationships can be, And as good and positive as they can be, they are but shadows of the real thing in Jesus. So yes, have your career. Be interested in influencing people. Be interested in making money. Be committed to being right. But don't let those things control you. And may God give us all grace that we would recognize when we are in bondage to them. Because oftentimes, when we, the only time, oftentimes we realize that we're in bondage to something when it gets taken away. Hasn't that been true in your life? You realize how caught up you are emotionally, how caught up you are and you're at a heart level and this thing is taken out and you realize, oh man, that has been running my life. Full transparency, there are times when I feel that about my job. I like to be needed. I like to help. By the way, I like to be right. And for me to get away, when I go on vacation, some of the deprogramming that happens and reflection that happens is that I realize, oh man, this is kind of running my life. 
And it's affecting my moods and it's affecting how worthy and how valued I think that I am. Do you ever have those moments? Maybe you're not at a point in your life where you're even able to reflect that much. I don't know. If you're not, pray about it. Try. Paul even adds here in verse 8 and 9, new life. Except here, he expands from verse 4. Remember, he's digging into the stuff of death and resurrection and freedom. And in verse 8 and 9, he builds upon verse 4 that says we're raised to new life in verse 4. And in verse 8, he says, yeah, it's new life in Jesus. And then he talks about how Jesus has died once and to die no more. And he's saying, neither will you. There's one death coming. And that's but a transition into life with Jesus forever and ever and ever. So this new life that you have, it's not this abstract idea. It's new life in Jesus every day that encompasses your eternal future. So that you can even look at death and know that it is but a transition into all that I'm supposed to be and all that I will be forever and ever and ever. That's kind of exciting, y'all. What he's saying is that our life, who you are, is not only rooted in the past, it is powered by the life of another. That who we are is powered every day by what Jesus has done and who he is. So that, in believing in him and following him, We have a brand new identity, a brand new future, a brand new way to look at career, a brand new way to look at family, a brand new way to look at relationships, a brand new way to look at being right, a brand new way to look at influence, a brand new way to look at everything. And that leads us to consider yourselves. Look at verses 11 through 13. So how do you view yourself? How do you view yourself in Jesus? Well, look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must, like today, now, and into the future, you must look in the mirror and because of Jesus say, I am dead to sin and I am alive to Jesus. Can you do that? Are you willing to get that habit going in your life? To consider yourself dead to sin? By the way, this is not any type of moralistic thing at all. Paul's saying this is how to truly think about yourself. This is how you can rightly think about who you are. So no matter what your background was, no matter how difficult it was growing up, no matter if you grew up in a home in which they just said you are the best human being possible, that there's no one like you, you're smarter than everybody else, you're better than everybody else, and how that has wrecked you on either side, positive or negative, This is what reorients all of that. That because of Jesus, I can say I'm dead to sin and alive in him. By the way, this doesn't mean that we no longer want to sin. Being dead to sin does not mean that we no longer want to sin. Being dead to sin does not mean that we will become perfect in this life. 
being dead to sin does not mean that we won't still sin because we will. What it means is that sin no longer dominates. I'll try to illustrate this through a story that is probably at best a legend, but because it's so illustrative, I want to use it. Even though at best, this may be just a legend. There's a guy in church history named Augustine. He's quite a figure in the history of the church, one of my favorites. And before he followed Jesus, he loved prostitutes. And when he started following Jesus, he was in the town square one day, and one of the prostitutes that he used to visit frequently saw him and came up to him and started yelling his name, Augustine, Augustine, ran up to him and touched his arm. She said, it is I. And he turned to her and said, yes, but tis not I. He considered himself dead to sin and alive in Jesus. You think he still had desires to sin? Just like we do, yes. We're gonna be perfect in this life? No. Will we still sin? Yes. But because of what Jesus has done, we can say no to sin and yes to life in Jesus. Well, then look at what it said in verse 12. Do not let sin reign. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do not let sin reign. You see, there's this natural connection between us being united to Jesus. Christ has delivered the death blow to our sin. We are being governed by the grace of God. We are connected to Jesus. He is our death. He is our life. We're not depraved anymore, if you like those theological terms. We are a brand new creation. All things are new. We're not depraved anymore. We've been set free to love God and to love Jesus and to love the Spirit and to follow God and love our neighbor. We are free to obey and follow because we want to. In Jesus, we have the greatest love flowing through us in the world. In Jesus, we have an identity that is invincible, that is given to us, that is not achieved. In Jesus, we have a future that is, so, that is immeasurably secure compared to every other hope we try to craft for ourselves and security we try to get. God is telling us, do not let sin reign. But still, doesn't that sound funny? Why would God say, do not let sin reign, when he's told us over and over in the previous verses that, he's, that we're dead to sin? Why would God say this? Because this is a privilege, beloved. And it's a privilege that we must act on. It's a privilege that we are supposed to experience not letting sin reign because it's already dead. It's something that we're supposed to live into. 
not letting sin reign. And we can experience it in two ways. I'll give you two quick illustrations. This first one, I hope, will challenge you a little bit. The movie, The Shawshank Redemption, whether you've seen it or not, doesn't matter. One of the main figures in the movie of The Shawshank Redemption was Morgan Freeman. And he had been in prison and was let go after 40 years. And when he got out of prison, he had a very difficult time living as a free man. After being in bondage for so long to our sin, it is hard for us to live free. It's hard because we're so used to saying yes to sin. We're so used to serving ourselves. And God is saying, don't do that because of what Jesus has done. Don't do it anymore. Fight against it. Make war with sin. Give yourself to righteousness. Give yourself to what is good. Give yourself to what is beautiful. Give yourself to what is true. But it's hard. It's hard. Because we're not used to being free. We're used to being in bondage. The second illustration is one of the nicest gifts that someone gave me was uh, field passes to a Tennessee football game. It was quite extraordinary. I know you guys don't care about that, but hang in there with me. Relive my joy. (laughs) So I went to his house. I was with Owen, and um, the girls were too young to go. So I went to my friend's house, and, and he gave me literal, literal, literally field passes to a game, which meant, just to be clear, I could stand on the field during some of the game. Well, imagine if I had taken those passes, put them in a nice envelope, and drove all the way back home and said, hey, Jenny, check this out. I got field passes. Look at this. And she would say, you idiot. Why aren't you on the field? Well, I just want to show you the passes. Is that the way to enjoy that privilege? No. I took the passes and I went to the stadium. And everywhere I went, here it is, right here. I can get on the field. I can go down this tunnel. I can go the inside of the stadium. I can walk around. I can see what I want to see. I get on the field. Beloved, that's what God is saying about the gospel. If you have the grace of God at work in your life, you don't put it in an envelope and put it on a shelf and point to it and say, there it is, isn't it an amazing gift? How about those field passes? How about the grace of God? Sits on my shelf, never touch it, don't worry about it, leave it alone. Or do I take the grace of God and I live into it? And I present my body, my mind, all that I am to God. God, you have my finances. You have my career. You have my family. You have the way that I manage my time. You have my desire for influence. You have my desire to be right. You have it all. I want to love you with all that I am. I want to love my neighbor. I want to love people that are difficult to love that cause pain and sacrifice and hardship. That's what I'm signing up for. 
The grace of God and the work of Jesus has meant for us to live into that, to experience it, to take it with us everywhere we go. So I guess the question remains, are you fighting sin? Are you fighting rebellion in your life? Is there something you're repenting of now? Is there something you need to repent of? Are you presenting all that you are to God? Are you withholding something from him? Are you presenting him his resources? Are you presenting him the time that he gives you? Are you serving him in your calling? How are you bringing your faith into your workplace? How are you repenting at home? How are you believing at home? How are you repenting with your friends and growing in depth of friendship? How are you believing? Because God is saying, this is who you are in Jesus. Jesus.